0: Alright, well I got the answer for whoever asked the question last week about the electors. How is the Electoral College put together? Should we begin with that? Yeah. And I'm not going to do this every week. Find your own answers. <laughs> Alright, choosing each state elector is a two-part process. First, the political parties in each state choose slates of potential electors, sometimes before general election. Second, uh, election day, the voters in each state select their state electors by casting their ballots for president. The first part of the process is controlled by political parties in each state and varies from state to state. Generally, the parties either nominate slates of potential electors as their state party conventions, or they choose them by a vote of the party central committee. This happens in each state for each party by whatever rules the state party and sometimes the national party have for the process. Uh, This first part of the process results in each presidential candidate having their own unique slate of potential electors. Uh, We'll read a little bit more. Political parties often choose electors for the slate to recognize their service and dedication to the political party. They may be state elected officials, state party leaders, or people in the state who have a personal or political affiliation with their party's presidential candidate. Uh, For specific information about how slates of potential electors are chosen, contact the political parties in each state. You can do that here. The second part of the process happens on election day when the voters in each state cast Votes for the presidential candidate of their choice. They are voting to select their state's electors. The potential electors' names may or may not appear on the ballot below uh, the name of the presidential candidate, depending on the election procedures and ballot formats in each state. The winning presidential candidate's slate of potential electors are appointed as the state's electors, except in Nebraska and Maine, which have proportional distribution of the electors. Is everybody sufficiently bored by now? In Nebraska and Maine, the state winner receives and who cares, let's move on. Um, Are there restrictions on who the electors can vote for? Do you want to know the answer to that? Okay. There is no constitutional provision or federal law that requires electors to vote according to the results of the popular vote in their states. Some states, however, require electors to cast their votes according to the popular vote. These pledges fall into two categories. Electors bound by state law and those bound by pledges to political parties. The U.S. Supreme Court has held that the Constitution does not require that electors be completely free. Here we go. The Constitution does not require that electors be completely free to act as they choose, and therefore, political parties may extract pledges from electors to vote for the party's nominees. Some state laws provide that so called faithless electors may be subject to fines or may be disqualified for casting an invalid vote. And be replaced by a substitute elector. The Supreme Court has not specifically ruled on the question of whether pledges and penalties for failure to vote as pledged may be enforced under the Constitution. No elector has ever been prosecuted for failing to vote as pledged. Now, this is important to remember. Today, it is rare for electors to disregard the popular vote by casting their electoral votes for someone other than their party's candidate. Electors generally hold a leadership position in their party and or were chosen to recognize recognize years of loyal service to the party. Throughout our history as a nation, more than 99% of electors have voted as pledged. So, there's your answer. And that's right off the Electoral College website, in case you wondered where I got that. And you can find that too. Uh, Basically, when you're voting for president, you're voting for the electoral slate that is placed there by the parties that have put forward the nominees. So when when you elect an elector, that's in a sense a representative form of government. So when you elect a Congress member and they go to Congress and they vote, oftentimes they won't vote your purpose or your will um, because they represent a large district and you're not going to get everything you want from anyone all the time. Well, the electors are the same way. They're representatives. And so they do have that option to not vote for the candidate of the party in which they represent. But they would be foolish to because they've risen to that position by their commitment to getting that candidate forward with those ideals on that platform. Does does that help? Okay. So tonight, uh, we have been going through looking at the Declaration of Independence. We've covered quite a lot of territory. We've been taking a look at this idea of the consent of the governed, which started the revolution, that one word consent. And we've taken a look at that, how this idea, as it says in the Declaration of Independence, that... Uh, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and we're going to cover that tonight in a little bit uh, greater detail, but we went through the concept of equality, not by capacity, but by dignity, dignity. Dignity. not by capacity, but by, not by, but by, you're doing great. (laughs) (laughs) Repetition is a form of learning. So in this idea of dignity, then we come to this, this realization that if we're equal in dignity given to us by our creator, not by man, but we're all equal in the eyes of God, if we're equal, then it, it, it only stands to reason that you can't do to me anything that I don't give you consent to do. Would we agree with that? So that gives rise and birth to this idea of the consent of the governed, which is found in the Declaration of Independence. Never before stated in the history of the world, this idea of the consent of the governed, that the king is born and I'm born and the king is no better than I am. And he can't rule me, even though he thinks he's born by divine right of kings. The reality is he is born the same way I am. And he is, he is equal in that capacity. He can only rule me if I give him consent because we're all born with these inalienable rights given to us by God. And we agree to incorporate together as a people to say, we will seek government, but you only have the right to rule me if I give you consent. Now we all clear on that. So that 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 dismantles the monarchies and the oligarchies of all of Western Europe. We come over here with this idea of consent of the governed. Now, The Constitution of the United States of America, which is our bylaws, the Declaration of Independence is our mission statement. From this mission statement, we have now these bylaws, how do we establish a government with consent of the governed? So we realize that the first thing we have to do is we have to establish who is sovereign, who is in charge, who's the head honcho, and the Constitution begins with, let's do that again together. We the so you're the sovereign, but what is unique that we've learned? What is unique about America that the sovereign us doesn't do that all other sovereigns and every other government does? We rule, but we don't participate in the government. Do you understand that? We're not actively every day working in the government, but we are the sovereign, So this consent of the governed, if we're giving consent for them to govern us, how do we protect ourselves from wanting to take over that authority and kick the bums out and take it over for ourselves? Or how do we protect the authority we've given them that they don't overreach on that? And so... Tonight, we're going to take a look at something very important that is designed in the first four articles of the Constitution. When we're finished tonight, if you're paying attention, you're going to know the first four of the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution so that when a candidate comes up and asks you, will you support me if I run for office, you ask them what? What are the articles of the U.S. Constitution and how do you plan to defend those? Now, if you don't know what they are, they're going to snow you. So, tonight we're going to learn the first four articles and how they fit. And it all begins with this idea. Can you see this word? It's passions. Do you see that? And then we have this one over here, appetites. And some of you haven't had dinner tonight. You know what I'm talking about? Impulse, passions, appetites, and impulse. That's my world. Passions, appetites, and impulses. So, you're on a diet strict diet and you have to eat specific foods and you're starving and you're looking for the foods you're supposed to eat. Let's just say you're on Atkins. I like to call it fatkins, but let's say you're on Atkins (laughs) and you only have proteins and there's none in the house and you open up and you're, I mean, you're ravenously hungry and you open and there is a big bag of potato chips (laughs) and you haven't had a carbohydrate in four weeks. They own, the, the potato chip bag looks like it has wings on it, and it's angelic. It's calling you. Nobody ever had that feeling? All right, how about this? You just see bacon sizzling in a pan. Anyone? That incites passions, appetites, impulses. It doesn't have to be food. It could be anything. I mean, how does, how does the marketing industry win us in a 30-second ad? Somehow they appeal to our passions and our appetites to create an impulse. Has anyone ever bought a timeshare? <laughs> We're just going to go for the free. Yeah. And you sit through, what, a, an hour and a half thing, 90 minutes? We're not buying anything. We're not. I was listening to somebody tell me the other day. My husband who said we're not bringing the checkbook. We're just going to go. We've done this before. We're impervious to it. We're going to get the free tickets to go on the cruise, and we're this is going to be awesome. And they sit through the whole thing, and the wife is like, she's the one who usually is impulsive. She's like, I am so not moved by this. And the husband says, we really need to do this. <laughs> They know that they're going to get you because they're going to, they're going to show you pictures and where you fit in that scenery and how it works. And, and, and you're going to have an impulse and you're going to buy it and you're going to get home and you're going to realize what in God's name have we done? We, the kids, we have to take them out of school. I'm, I am going to have to sell an organ, right? That's what happens. But what is, what is a family that understands passions, impulses, and appetites, and they're faced with something like that, where the guy comes with a vacuum cleaner at your door, what's the first thing that the spouse at home says? What's the greatest protection from having to buy that sucker? I need to talk with my, my spouse. That's a great out. And what you do is you sit down and you say, really? And the, and the cool thing about two heads reasoning together is you're co- contemplating it, if you're not both impulsive, is that you don't, you're buying something you don't need with money you don't have to impress somebody you don't know. And, and how many of us are driven by impulses and passions and appetites because this is a consumer generation. And we're sitting there as the, as the microwave is working on our, our one-minute burrito and we're like, hurry up. And we pull that thing out, it's molten, and we're still eating it, and we're blistering as we're trying to get that thing down. Our founders wanted to avoid decisions. Our founders wanted to avoid decisions made on passions, appetites, and impulses. Yeah. And so they came up with this idea of reason, debate, and patience. So when you're reasoning with someone, what does that mean you have to do? You have to talk, and what else do you have to do? And you have to come to a civil agreement to understand both sides of the issues. But if you are passionate and impulsive, and it's all about your appetites, all you do is argue, yell, and you never accomplish anything. But if you really want to seek reason, which comes to truth, and debate that for understanding, and come through debate and reason and rhetoric, and you come through this, it requires patience. Nobody likes how slow the gears grind of government. It takes a long time. But the process was designed so that reason, debate, and patience would come together in our nation. And so that brings us to tonight's lesson. I'm going to ask you a trick question. I know we've covered it, but I really want you to think about this with what you know of world history I know we've covered it, but I want you to think about what you know of world history, because it is a trick question. What is the longest running constitution in human history? Raise your hand if you have a, yes? Did everyone agree with that? Some of you are going, well, I don't know. I said, trick question, you gave up. I already told you the answer weeks ago. You should have jumped and said, the U.S. Constitution, idiot. Well done. How long has it been in existence? 241 years. No, 230 years. The declaration is 241 years. So 230 years, the U.S. Constitution has been in place. And here tonight, we're going to realize why it is the longest running constitution in the history of the world. It was designed... This is why it's the longest running constitution in the history of the world. It was designed, this is so cool, it was designed so that we would not be ruled by passion, appetite, or impulse. That's why it's lasted 230 years, so that we wouldn't be driven by passion or appetite or impulse. But if we're not driven by this, what did our founders want us to be driven by? reason through discussion, logic, and patience. It was designed so that we wouldn't be ruled by the passions or the appetites, but by reason and patience. And so the idea is you talk it through and it takes time. And so what I want to look at tonight is this idea that passions come and go, but convictions do not. Have you ever, I mean, I'm 53. I can, I can go through all the fads. You had to have a pet rock and a a bean patch doll or whatever it was, or (laughs) Or cabbage patch. (laughs) I remember the Walkman that I had to have and anyone just ever have to have anything. You know, what's really fun to do, go out and follow the Harris dump trucks to the dump site and watch all the junk that they dump. And you look at it and you go, I really had to have that. (laughs) And you realize I really don't need it. I mean, how do you buy, you know, Bought that uh, thing that moves and you run on it. <laughs> a, treadmill? a treadmill, right? And what did you do with it? It was a place where you hung your clothes. <laughs> you never used it, and nobody wants it. And and this is this is the idea that we are driven by these passions, and passions come and go. And and you can think about it. The the the, the relationships you entered into because you were smitten by a vision, and then all of a sudden you get to realize a person, and as you start to work through life. You're like, But if passions come and go, the larger purposes of life must be achieved over a long period of time. The larger things in life, the more important things in life. I'm, I'm 53, but I'm a father. Now, long before I was a father, I was a husband. I've been doing that for 27 years. Some of you laugh thinking that's nothing. That's, that's, that's the one thing I've done right for the longest, more than half my life. I tell you what, it's a lot of work to be married. And I'll tell you what, you want to raise good kids, it requires long-haul vision. And if you entered into a relationship by passion and appetite and impulse, you're going to exit it as quick as you went into it. But you want to build families and raise kids, they take time and input and reason, not always logic. Um, (laughs) But you endeavor. And, And how does a family survive communicating? working through issues. You don't slam the door. You don't talk to your mother that way. You don't talk to your siblings that way. Sit down, sit straight. Don't, don't chew with your mouth open. What are you doing? You're walking them through life and you're showing them what life is about. And to raise good kids, it requires time and effort. If you think good kids just come because you farm them off to somebody else to raise, you're gonna turn around one day and realize you don't know who your kids are. And I told you the story about my dad with Alzheimer's. He never showed you the right side of the wall with all of his accomplishments. He always showed you the left side of the hallway with all the pictures of the family. In the throes of Alzheimer's, none of this mattered, but the kids, the family were everything. And why? Because that was long haul. When he went to Vietnam, he always came home. When he went to the bank, he always came home. When he went on a deployment, he always came home. That's where his heart was, and that's where his life was. That's where his future was. That's what he poured into Well, these founders, when they said in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people. So at any moment in time with any people, this is a long haul venture that is going to resonate throughout the world when we grasp the concept that all men are created equal. It's going to be a seed planted in the soil of every human heart that longs for freedom. For every human heart that believes that it isn't a cosmic accident, was but was created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, born in equality of dignity, maybe not capacity, but certainly dignity, that in that seed of that human heart would blossom this heart for freedom when in the course of human events it becomes necessary. This is a long-haul process. And it required blood, blood, sweat, and tears. It required a group of men and women to encounter and endure a war with the greatest power on the face of the earth and miraculously win that war from an enemy that had already defeated the second largest military on the face of the earth. And they did it with one in nine Americans fighting in the Revolutionary War. And we've covered some of that. And what, what what's the point of that? This is the idea that they did this through debate and reason and patience. You want it and you want it now. That's an impulse. That's impatience. You want to fix the government and so you are going to do something that is so simple to do. It's not that simple if you want to do it right. An executive order is a usurpation of power that is given to another branch of the government. And if we don't speak about it, we're in trouble. And so the idea of our founders is they wanted reason to speak to patients, or let me, let me say that in a better way. Reason speaks to patients. Work through this. We should work in the lives of our children to make them civil, to have an understanding of reason, debate, and logic, and rhetoric. I was just with a bunch of kids over at this school, Beacon Hill School, and listening to them, here they are in the fifth grade, understanding logic, reason, rhetoric, debate. Fascinating. Memorizing whole aspects of scripture, equipped to do these things. Conviction and reason prevails, and this is the system that they designed. And they established the connection between the people and the government. And I want to share this with you. They established this, this connection between the people and the government. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to give power to government, but they wanted the ultimate authority to be with the people, the sovereign. So how do you keep the ultimate authority with the sovereign but give the power to the government so that the government's strong enough to be able to do what a government needs to do? So they located the ultimate authority in the people. They prescribed how the people must hold opinions over time to make them effective by reason and debate and patience. And the system makes possible um, something very unique to American government. The sovereign, the people can delegate the authority to to the one entity. So what we do is we're the sovereign and we don't do the government. So what do we do? We delegate it. How do we do that? By representation. So we delegate it by representation. And this is where we're going to cover the first four articles of the U.S. Constitution. Let's begin with uh, the legislative power. Do we have that slide or I'll I'll do it? It's my turn tonight. Here we go. The American Constitution gives effect to consent through representation... It locates all sovereignty in the people, not in the government, and it excludes the sovereign from the ordinary operations of the government. These are all checks and balance, and this is to protect us. Now, Article 1, what, are, what the sovereigns do, what we, the people do, is we divide the power. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to say, okay, Article 1, let's take the legislative power, how laws are made, and let's give it to the Congress. Oops. Let's give it to the Congress. So Article 1 is a legislative article, and it points out that we give legislative authority to the Congress. It goes further than that. We'll cover it in greater detail, but you have your House of Representatives, you have the Senate, Uh, every state gets two senators, and you get the number of of representatives based on the population of your state. Then they said, okay, now let's look at Article 2, and what we're going to do with Article 2 is we are going to give this executive power to the president. And we're going to see how this came about. Has anyone ever heard of Shay's Rebellion? Yes. Shay's Rebellion is a reason why we have executive power, and it's a reason why George Washington came out of retirement to oversee the Constitutional Convention. And then we have judicial power, which is interesting because as they they, they saw this idea of judicial power, how is the legislature how is the legislature put into office? Hello. We vote them in. Who votes them in? The sovereign. How is the executive put into power? Voted Voted in. By who? No. The legislature. Right? The electoral college. Follow? I mean, there is a popular vote, and we do let our will be known, but ultimately... And so how do we protect where the judges come from? We elect the legislature. We have a hand in electing the executive office, And then the legislature, Article 1 and Article 2 combine to appoint Article 3, the judges. Judges are appointed by those two entities. The legislature funds them. The executive has the ability to appoint them. And so each has a check and balance. And then Article 4, which isn't up there. Do we have Article 4 up there? Okay, well, Article 4, the legislative power goes to the Congress. The executive power goes to the president, judicial power goes to the judges, and all that's remaining that we want to delegate, which is an enormous amount, all of that goes to Article 4, which is, what do you think? Who do you think is supposed to have the most power in this country? The states. We've lost that. Read Article 4, it's fascinating. So Article 4 is states. So if you want to remember the first four, legislative, executive, judicial, and states, Legislative, executive, judicial, and states. Let's do it together. Legislative, executive, judicial, and states. One more time. Legislative, executive, judicial, and states. You got it? Let me hear you do it without me. Legislative, executive, judicial, and states. Did you do it without looking? I'm just yeah. <laughs> now, the sovereigns delegate all of this power into four entities. Legislative, executive, judicial, and states. The symmetry of it is brilliant. How do you get anything done? The legislature has to legislate. The executive has to execute. The judicial has to rule on these things. Everybody's got a role in it. What are they doing? They're reasoning and they're debating and there's patience. And all of that is given as we educate our young to participate in the process of distributing the power while the sovereign still retains it. The symmetry of it is fascinating, and if anything up there isn't being accomplished quickly, push it to the states, and let the states rule, and even push it further down to the county and to the local level, so that we have this freedom to operate and to accomplish these things. And it's all made possible by one word, consent, that brings on representation. Now, what would happen if the sovereign, you or me, if the sovereign participated in any one of these bodies of government? Mob, rule, chaos. Let me me give you the answer to the question I was asking. Whatever branch that the sovereign decides to participate in becomes the dominant branch, right? So what's fascinating in this form of government is the sovereign doesn't participate, so neither portion should be dominant because all of them checks the others. Whatever part the government, the sovereign was in, that would become the dominant part. But by this constitution, we can separate those powers, which I've shown you here. This allows them to be strong, which we still need. We need the government to be strong, but we still need safety in protecting our freedoms. And this is how we do it. This is the design that our founders gave us. So what that means is that principles of human equality under the laws of nature and nature's God gives rise to the principles of government by consent, which we've already covered, And that's all found in this article, the Declaration of Independence. And their powers are arranged as such. Watch this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So there we have equality by dignity. They're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So what are the just powers that they're deriving? What did the, what did the, legisl- what did the Congress get? What power did they get? Legislative. What did the president get? He got executive power. What did the judges get? And what did the states get? Everything else. And that comes from who? The consent of the governed, which is the sovereign, which is who? Okay, so are you getting this? What happened? Was that it? By the consent of the governed, and this is, what's that? Oh, we'll get back to that. Don't do that yet. Stay there. Stop. So it lays the ground for a government that is, one, grounded in the people, and and the powers are arranged so that, the better angels is, as is, um, Abraham Lincoln said, the better angels of our nature um, allow us to, to be driven towards a government, not by passion, but by reason. The better angels of our nature. What does that mean? Has anyone in here ever been driven by passion? Anyone ever been driven by impulse or your appetite? The Apostle Paul, I'll put on my pastor's hat now. The Apostle Paul said, those things that I want to do, I don't do those. Those things I don't want to do, those I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Has anyone ever used the term, I swear to God, I'll never do that again? (laughs) Anyone? Is it just me? (laughs) And how many of you did it again? Impulsive, appetites, right? But there's a better nature in us. And hence, if if there is a creator, and we've been created equal, and there are the laws of nature and nature's God, how do we come to an understanding of how that governs us as a people? What is this law of nature that we're bound by gravity, whether we're agnostic or atheist or Protestant or Catholic or Buddhist? How is that law of nature discovered by reason and by debate and by patience, studying understanding teaching our children to learn not telling them what they need to know right not giving them the things we want them to have but teaching them how to find truth and and as and as we teach our children this concept of reason and debate and patience it takes a lot of reason debate and patience But it creates an educated, literate constituency, and only a constitutional republic can survive with a moral people. So it requires us to invest in this. And so you see this, that it's grounded in the people, the powers are arranged so that, as Lincoln said, the better angels of our nature, we will not be driven in a sense by our passion, but by reason. And the founders believed that because... I'll tell you, this government was in accord, very simply. Our founders believed, as we saw the the Declaration of Independence, the founders believed it because it was in accord with human nature, which is the nature that we all possess. The law of nature and nature is God. And we all possess it. The law of nature and nature is God. So let's look at that. We're below God and above the beasts. And what do we have? What does a child have? If the child and the puppy are both born and as they grow up, what does the child, we covered this, what does a child possess that the dog doesn't have? Language. Animals can communicate pain and pleasure. Human beings can communicate for the purpose of justice, truth, right? We can grow to comprehend our surroundings and rise to this, this, law of nature and nature's God to to fulfill the fullness of the nature we've been designed for. So let me, let me take it a little bit further and I'm almost finished. I have one thing I want to do tonight. Um, Our founders thought that such a government would last a long time. They really believed, as they said, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people. They believed our government would last a long time in principle and survive trial and hardship. And you know what? They were right. I mean, this is pretty amazing. From the Declaration of Independence, 241 years, and from the U.S. Constitution, 230 years, and it's proven to be very strong. This Constitution, as we've covered, statue, statute, Constitution, immovable object. It's proven to be very strong, and it's gone through many, many trials. And this Constitution is difficult to overcome. We're getting close, but the more we're prepared to be educated. You know what lies in you? And this is what's fascinating, this law of nature. What lies in you and the reason why you're here? I didn't call you today and say, would you come? And quite honestly, this is a lot of work. And it's the middle of the week. It's a Wednesday and you're tired. And it's not like I'm very exciting. And when we're reading stuff like that, if I were in your seat, I'm like, coffee's not enough. We need espresso. (laughs) You know why you're here? is because there's a seed in the law of nature that every person in this room, regardless of your political affiliation and your education, there's something in you that cries for freedom. And you know whatever's out there isn't working. And you're moved. You want an understanding. You want to gain an understanding. And what's fascinating about a seed in the law of nature with nature's God, you take that seed and, and imprinted in that seed, like it is in every human heart, is a DNA of freedom. There's a nature in that. And you put that seed in the ground, and you give it all the elements of nature for it to flourish and become everything that its creator intended it to be. And it flourishes. And when it flourishes, this is what's fascinating that seed grows. And then all of a sudden, as it grows, it sprouts leaves. And those leaves connect with the sun. And what does it start to do? Photosynthesis, which creates <sighs> oxygen that takes <coughs> carbon out of the air. And it becomes a part of something greater, an ecosystem. And all of a sudden, it spreads with this idea as it reaches its full potential as it was designed. And we look and we think, this fits all of the law of nature and nature's God. And you can go further with the law of nature and nature's God, beginning with the birth of a seed. You can go as far as you want into the cosmos. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. All from a little seed of an idea planted in the human heart with a DNA. And I say this because the Declaration of Independence gave birth to freedom from a seed that has its DNA deeply embedded in the heart of every man and woman, and that's freedom creating a government that we control that protects our freedom and gives sufficient power to the difficult work of government. And that is what it set out to do 241 years ago, and it's amazing how well it's done. And I'm going to close tonight. I've got 10 minutes, and I can do this. I'm going to close tonight because often I hear the discouragement and the apathy and most of you can tell me what's wrong with government but you don't know what the government is and what it's supposed to do you're really good at defining all the problems because we're all subject to them and we've all been discouraged if you're young you really believed in hope and change if you're older you've been through this many times and you're even more cynical some of you have seen a country which had this machination, or which, which, which had this I- idea, and you remember that. Some of the younger folks have no idea what you're talking about. And you're looking at them thinking, "This will never happen again." There's a passage in the scripture where the temple was rebuilt, and the old people said, "Nah, it's not like it used to be." And the young people are like, "This is awesome." And I'll tell you what young and older are all here tonight, because we're driven by this seed. Now maintain that and this idea of law of nature. Because I'm going to go somewhere with it. Let's just plow the field. And you know what? We've been through a plowing this last week. A member of our congregation, her son, was shot twice in Las Vegas. A friend, not a close friend, but a friend nevertheless, my friend Carrie was killed. She worked at Master, she was shot number of our citizens have been hurt, wounded. And and let me add, has anyone gone up to Dos Fientos and say, you know, F your God, it's spray painted on Dos Fientos thing and the crosses are upside down? Yeah. We're watching as 44 young people have died of overdoses in Ventura County, 11 in Conejo alone. We're looking at Things that are overwhelming. And this is this this is a generation, you older folks, you used to read the news slowly with your cup of coffee. The younger folks are just information overload. And what is true, what isn't true? And everybody's throwing stuff out and they're trying to sift through it. And they're they're not getting any foundation or and and here we are, but we still have this seed. And you're discouraged, I get it. But I want to tell you something. Don't think for a minute that in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people. Don't think for a minute that this, this world hasn't been worse. I got news for you. It's been way worse. And you think the Amer- United States of America is in, in, in bad shape right now? I want to take you back to 1860. There were 30 million people in the country. 1860, 30 million people. A president is elected by the name of Abraham Lincoln. And fascinatingly enough, he was from a party that didn't exist six years previous. In 1854, 11 people got together, I think, no, 17 people got together in a church in Ripon, Wisconsin. And they got together for the sole purpose of abolishing slavery. Everybody laughed at them. They had an influx in the House and the Senate, and by 1860, they got a president elected by the name of Abraham Lincoln. He'd been a congressman. He'd lost more elections than he'd won. And he was only a a freshman congressman. I think one term. And he steps in against Lincoln Douglas, who supported slavery. Lincoln was opposed to it. And when when he gets elected to office, before he even arrives in Washington for the inauguration, seven of the states in the United States secede from the Union. He hasn't become president yet, and seven states leave the Union. Ultimately, four more would join. That'd be 11 in a nation of, what, 30, 34 states? And in 1861, with the firing on Fort Sumter, the war would begin, and we would lose unbelievable battles. And... Robert E. Lee and the Confederate forces were eviscerating the Union forces. And they had one campaign that they were going to enter the North and they were going to crush the backbone and the spirit of the Union. And that was Gettysburg on July 1st, 1863, July 1st to July 3rd. George Meade stopped them. Massive casualties. And from that point on, Lee was never on the offensive. He was always on the defensive. And it took a matter of time before the war ended. July 1st to July 3rd, almost 30,000 casualties. And it was in the north, so they dedicated this cemetery, Gettysburg Cemetery, on November 19th, 1863, just a few months following the battle. And the graves were just freshly dug. I want you to see... 51,000 wounded, 8,000 killed, 10,000 missing. And later the numbers would go higher. And as they, they went to go bury these dead the graves were shallow and the rains came as they do in the fall and the ground got soft and arms were sticking out and the stench was just overwhelming and they all gathered to hear a man speak and it was a dedication of this battlefield but it was the largest numbers of casualties in the war it was a successful defense robert e lee Gettysburg campaign led up to the battle He had been making great headway to defeat the Union, but this battle served as a turning point, halting his invasion in the battle, sent General Lee's troops into the defensive. This is a picture of the graves, and you can see the minute it begins to rain, what happens? Bodies are exposed. So when all these lovely people showed up for the dedication of the Gettysburg Cemetery, National Cemetery, they had to wear rags over their face because the stench was so bad rotting corpses as far as the eye could see. And they didn't even want Lincoln to speak. He was so despised because of the dead that kept rolling in day after day. And they'd come to hate him. And he had, he had done the Emancipation Proclamation, which angered anyone remaining in the North. And his popularity rating was the worst of any sitting president in the history of the United States. Does anyone know who this is? That was the primary speaker at Gettysburg. What's his name? I don't recall his name. He was the primary speaker. His name was Ed, Edward Everett, and he was an orator and people just adored him and they gave him the keynote instead of the President of the United States. He spoke for over an hour. And as he stepped down, Lincoln got up and read the Gettysburg Address. And he was down so quickly they couldn't even set up a camera. Which one does the pointer? This one? This one? Yeah. They couldn't even get the camera, but that's him right there. He doesn't have a stovepipe hat, but they couldn't even get a picture of him. The whole Gettysburg, uh, Gettysburg address took four minutes, approximately. And I want you to just look at me real quick. Please look at me. Don't look at the screen. Please. I want you to think about that seed. I don't don't care how rough it is right now. Get over it. Because within your heart is that DNA, and you've been given everything you need to make it happen. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Conceived, that's a seed, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, dignity, not capacity. We cannot hollow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or to detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work, which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining for us that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. And that government of the people, the sovereign, by the people, the sovereign, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. my mother lived with a woman when my father was in a home with Alzheimer's. The lady, my mom took care of the lady and she lived to be 93. Her name was Dr. Alice Crilly, Dr. Alice Royal Crilly. And she was from Pennsylvania. And um, she's a pretty neat woman. She had a photographic memory, and she gave me a gift when she died. She said, Rob, this belonged to my great-great-grandfather. And she said, Rob, my great, no, I'm sorry, great-grandfather, my great-grandmother, no, great-great, my great-great-grandfather and my great-great-grandmother was still living. I was 17 when she died. And she said, Rob, she was an eyewitness of the Gettysburg Address. And her husband, Henry Roth, fought at the Battle of the Wilderness. He didn't fight in Gettysburg, but fought in the Battle of the Wilderness. Amazing that he survived. It was the, the bloodiest battle in the Civil War. She was an eyewitness of the Gettysburg Address. So I'm talking to a woman. I'm one person removed from an eyewitness of the Gettysburg Address. And when she died, she gave me her great-great-grandfather's kepi. Now, that wasn't that long ago. And I just have a question for you, as bad as it is. We lost 650,000 people. That would be the equivalent of 6 million Americans today. Actually, with all wounded totals, 1.5 million, which would be the equivalent of 15 million in the United States. For a new birth of freedom, because that seed resides in every human heart, You can operate this way, or you can step in for the long haul and do the hard work, which needs to be done. I've done the hard work to educate you, not so that you can just be a a sponge and do nothing with it. We have work to do. And as the days gather, we're going to figure out applications for all of this and how we can make a difference just within the community itself. And so I've gone too long, and I want to leave 15 minutes for question and answer. So you get 12 minutes. Any questions tonight that I can answer for you? By the way, last week, uh, some of the younger people were marveling at the questions. They were really blessed. And, you know, I know tonight was more hopefully inspirational, but there's got to be some questions. Yeah. what what's the question on well, the question is, is is that a good place to start okay so to apply what we're learning Okay, so uh, how do we get this implemented, what we're learning? You already gave the answer to your question. You involve yourself because it's of the people, by the people, for the people. You're the sovereign. The people who've been elected are the people you need to be vetting. You need to organize on how to get those people elected. You need to be purposeful in it. You need to participate in campaigns. You need to walk precincts. You need to host coffees. You need to contribute to campaigns. It's hard work. You you, you need to do the footwork. You, You can't just operate by your passions, appetites, and impulses and sit on the chair and say, that guy's a knucklehead. You have to step into that campaign. You've got to move people. I've never done it before. I'd never done it before up until 2014. And I realized what an enormous amount of lifting requires to just step into a city council. And, and everybody likes that somebody's there, but we all have to lift. So yes, you're right. We need good people. Good government happens with good people but those good people have to engage in the process by reason, debate and patience and heavy lifting and work. So I would encourage any of you who feel the same way to participate in a campaign, a campaign of somebody that you vetted with the knowledge you have to implement this understanding in those positions and to accomplish those tasks. secondly, Is anyone participating in the PTA? I don't even know if they call PTA now. Get involved. Get involved. If you're a teacher, participate in the teacher's union to start to dialogue and debate and do it with patience and kindness and civility, but contend. Don't step out of the process and, and decry its decline. These people bloodied themselves to give you what you have today. I think we can go to a PTA meeting. I was blessed to see a number of folks at the council meeting last night and, and, and to contend for the taxes in, the, in California over that. They we're so thrilled that we have $10 million to be able to put to our roads. And we, we got that from SB1. SB1 just took $50 million out of our city with state taxes, and they're going to give us $3 million back? That's called a ripoff. Where is the outcry? We're upset about the, the raise of the city manager and the city attorney. Whoa, 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 back up the bus. You just lost $47 million and didn't say boo. Get engaged. Participate. We, the people, we're the sovereign. We vet them. We give them power. This is the whole process. This is the principle of it. We do the work. There's no apathy, Right? I don't know if that's the answer you wanted, but man, I was passionate about it. (laughs) Yes. Yes, back here. Say that again. Are we... are we more at risk as a country falling apart now than we were at the time of the Civil War? Because Now, the issues are um, the whole concept of God, and to me, God's the whole foundation of this whole thing, as you pointed out in the Declaration of Independence. Okay. I got it. Okay, so the question is, are we more in danger because the found, this, this appears at this stage in the history of the United States to be more of an attack foundationally, and is it, is it more detrimental than it was during the Civil War? Um, and then you're, you brought into it this idea of um, having a, a, a society that understands uh, a creator and being created in the image of God, and that, that kind of thing. Is that correct? Yeah. The question? Okay. Are we going away? So, so let me answer that. Prior to the Revolutionary War, and one of the authors you can read, his name is J. Edwin Orr. He's a foremost historian on revival in in America, actually around the world. He had uh, four doctorates, uh, one from Oxford, one from UCLA, a couple other places. Brilliant guy. He pointed out that prior to the Revolutionary War, there was no faith in America. It was destitute. Now, granted, you had Puritans and separatists and you had folks that had built establishments and they had churches, but churches were on the decline. Uh, seminaries were becoming very liberal. It was, it was everything that you're painting in America today. And, and then all of a sudden, you had the first great awakening with Whitfield and, and it came through and and Benjamin Franklin was a part of that. He saw it all happening, actually paid for one of the revivals. Fascinating point in history. Then you come to the United States of America during the civil war, 1857, same thing, a decline in faith absent. Nobody's going to church. Uh, Seminaries are closing. Churches don't have anyone converting. Nothing's happening. Jeremiah Lanfear, second floor Dutch reform church in uh, New York starts a prayer meeting um, Horace Greeley who's an editor goes up and down trying to figure out how many of these prayer meetings started up And when the course of eight months a million new converts in a nation of 30 million uh, One of the biggest revivals in the history of the united states. Yes, they they coincide with this This desire for freedom and this this return to to an understanding of your creator creates this revival people want it and and you know I'll put on my pastor's hat where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. The darker it gets, the more the light shines. You're drawn to it when, when you've experienced all the misery. If anyone's ever engaged deeply in stuff that is bad after a while, it just becomes basically boring and you want out. And, and, and once everyone is just, okay, we've done all that. What else is there? There's nothing else. There's always been your creator and you've been designed for this. You've been doing this, but you're designed for this. It creates a revival. So what you saw with Horace Greeley, 1857, ushered us into this whole new movement of the civil war that we would endure. 14 states seceding from the union, 650,000 people dying, over a million wounded, still maintain the union and survive that. So yeah, I, I think every time we've been in crisis, the foundations are in trouble, but if you, you, let's let's do something. I, I, apathy and, and fatalism does not win the day. And I, I the Bible says we're more from from the Christian perspective as a pastor. I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. There, it's, I, I never lose hope. I'm always excited about the future. What, for those of you who remember Reagan, some of the younger folks, what was the thing that moved you the most about him? Hope. And it wasn't a false hope, it was a vision of the future with this idea of appealing to the higher nature of man. And he understood the constitution of these things. That's what people were drawn to him. And there's there's people have seen both sides of it. Get out there and share this. Because regardless of where they are politically affiliated, when they start to revisit these things, there wasn't a Democratic Party back then, there wasn't a, a Republican Party there were federalists and there was you know anti-federalists but they worked through this so long answer one two more questions um yeah back here but is a disassociative conjunctive so basically you've erased everything he said go ahead get, involved, get involved. yeah I'll tell you what, did I, anybody else want the microphone because I lost control? Yeah. <laughs> At the Reagan Library, um, I'm a docent there, as you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that every time I go in there, I say to my husband, okay, this week I'm going to get fired Because we cannot talk about politics or religion there. And I'm not You have to get a question because it's taken everybody's opportunity to ask questions. So I really okay. do want to know like I'm looking for those Okay, all right, I'll help you. I'll give you just a personal example. four years ago I knew nothing about running for office and I ran for the state assembly. Uh, we had six hundred and fifty volunteers and I, I lost by what, four thousand votes and over hundred thousand cast. And most Christians didn't show up. And, and most churches wouldn't invite me in to pray for me. That's apathy. 85 million evangelicals, half of them are registered to vote, and half of those vote. That's 25%, 12%. I've, I've done all my homework. I've been up and down the country. I've seen it. But I stepped in anyways, and it was hard. I got ridiculed. I got, I got paraded in the mail. I got hit pieces. I got death threats. I got everything you can imagine. I did it. And 650 people did it with me. One man, how many phone calls did you make, Tom? 25,000? That's called heavy lifting. And as a result, we lost. $1.8 million flushed. And, and my opponent spent $6.3 million. What did we get for it? Well, I ended up winning a city council seat by 52 votes. That's playing with a full deck of cards. And I've been reelected by now over, what, 5,000 votes. And a school board that was once four to one progressive versus somebody who had this idea of created in the image of God is now three to two because of that effort the city council used to be called the tuesday night fights now it's peace in the valley the ventura county star said that we've made a difference in the ventura county uh, uh, supervisory board all in two years so i i'm saying from from ignorance to just stepping in if you're just willing to step in do it But if every time you get battled, they attacked us over the school. We had two teachers sue us because they they didn't believe that they had to have a a pastoral reference or be Christians to teach in a Christian school. I'm thinking, if you're going to be teaching in a French cooking school, don't you, you know, that speaks, don't, uh, anyways. And they sued us, and and everyone ridiculed us, and and the churches backed away from us, and we won. I'm saying, push it. You're letting them push you. Push back step in yeah it is persecution and that's you know if you're not getting persecuted you're rubbing the cat the wrong way it, it's it's and but don't don't go out seeking it be civil and be kind but just with a smile engage it's 801 I don't know if I can do any more questions is it a question or comment that okay. Prayer is absolutely where prayer is concentrated. Revival happens. But I, I want you guys to know in this room, folks are drawn here in a pluralistic society that aren't churchgoers and they want to know how freedom works. And we're telling them now, prayer is great, but they want to see you successful at it. The and so the, the, thank you. It's good. So that's the idea. Uh, wh- That's it, 802? I said we'd end at 8, and you guys are feisty tonight. (laughs) All right, God bless you guys.